This morning we continue with our teaching on relationships out of Peter with one another within the church. And we're going to be looking, I know last week we only looked at really one principle. We're going to be doing somewhat similar, but it's going to be involving three phrases here in 1 Peter 3.8 and drawing them together as being uh, in agreement or, or dependent upon one another and expressive of that. And so let's go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you be of one mind. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we come into this, and we want to further develop the concept of the relationship we have within the church with our brethren, not only in the local church assembly, and certainly that is the beginning of it, with these that are seated around you and some that we miss today for various reasons, uh, but also for the church universal, and thus we can look out beyond our walls and we can see those within this community, uh, within this state, nation, world, and see those that we should share these same uh, principles with. And we looked last week, of course, at the concept of one-mindedness, that it wasn't just unity, but it was even more than that, that it was unanimity, is that agreement to truth. It is that assent there that that is the authority that we all answer to and it is the authority that we all uh, point to when we want to make our position statements. Whereas we uh, consider what does God require of us? Who is God? What is he doing? That we do not manufacture these things in our own minds, in our own intellects, but rather, nor do we inherit them from traditions, but we derive them from God's word. And so it's to God's word that we go, and that should be uniform among the church, uh, both in a local church and church universal, that we go there and we say, this is our authority, this is the source, and while we can reference other things, uh, we come here and we say, this is our mind, this is the mind of God that has been communicated to us, and so we have this mind in, in you. We're going to tie this together next week a lot more, that idea of, of the mindedness of Christ. And remember, we have been talking about Christ as our example for our relationships throughout, and it doesn't mean that there is no place for rebuke and correction, because obviously Paul tells Timothy that that's one of the purposes of the Word of God, but that is the foundation. It's not, I'm going to rebuke you because you don't agree with me, it's, I'm going to be rebuked because I don't agree with God's word. This is the tool, this is the authority that we rebuke and correct and instruct in righteousness. And so it is to God's word, to truth, that we uh, subordinate ourselves, we humble ourselves there, we submit ourselves to that. And that is the foundation, really, of what is coming, uh, because not that we are... Uh, disregarding and having no compassion for anyone outside of our faith, outside of this unanimity, but that we are 
uh, focus there and that that is the strength of it. So now we come to three phrases that we're going to tie together and really um, bring, and it's going to be kind of a sandwich here. We're going to have two expressions of the middle uh, description. So we have having compassion for one another, love as brothers, and be tender-hearted. We want to handle these three as a triad. And so we're going to look at what it means to be compassionate, what it means to be uh, tender-hearted. And you might say, well, that's the same thing, but they aren't. They are somewhat dissimilar. They have some distinctions there we want to talk about. Um, but we're going to look at, first of all, the core of that, which is uh, described as love as brothers. Now, as soon as you see love as brothers, you should immediately come to your mind uh, a certain Greek word, because we are all trained, I think, over many opportunities to talk about the three Greek words for love, particularly two of them. Uh, we studied this when we were in the last few chapters of John, last chapter of John, when Jesus is in engagement with Peter. That uh, And we know that, well, Jesus is using one term, Peter's using a different one. And we talked about that term a lot at that point, and I want to reference it again today, uh, particularly with Peter using it, because that was the conversation that this is built on. Now, the term here is phileo, that is a brotherly love, and that is the term that Peter was using back there in John, and I will want to bring back to your memory some of that. So let's go to the Gospel of John. We're going to spend a little bit of time here because, again, this is the core of, of all of this. And, and really, I know that we have spent a lot of time on that, that entire sermon on it. And so we are here, and we have, the I'm sorry, the last chapter of John, John 21. And this is the breakfast by the sea after Christ's resurrection. And we have this engagement between uh, Jesus and Peter, beginning verse 15. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Uh, he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, much has been written in modern times. If you'll recall, we studied that weeks ago, or <laughs> months ago, uh, at the end of John, about how we have flipped the, the, the superiority of one over the other. So Jesus is saying, do you agape me? Peter says, no, I phileo you. And Jesus asks him again, do you agape me? And I phileo you. And then Jesus says, do you phileo me? And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. And we say, well, we're going from brotherly love to agape love. And somewhere along the line in recent times, and by recent times, even last century or so, we have flipped the significance of these terms. And we made Jesus asking for a more significant love than what Peter was offering. But in fact, throughout all of history, these two Greek words had opposite concepts. The phileo love was the higher love, and agape, the lesser one. And so hence Jesus says, do you at least agape me? And Peter is essentially saying, Lord, I phileo you. Um, I, I have this complete love. And Jesus says, well, I'm really just asking if you have this much. And Peter's offering much more. And then Jesus says, do you really phileo me? Is this, is this really a substantial commitment on your part? And we have, we have seen in, in the last 
couple of generations where in our commentaries and preaching that we've switched this around and made Peter sound like he was not willing to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength because we have diminished the value of brotherly love and, and exalted the concept of agape love. And uh, what we find, though, in the Greek mind is that that was a very different, in fact, 180 degrees different view that phileo love was considered one of the highest form, the highest form of love. And so when Peter comes to us and says, you ought to love one another as brothers. You ought to have phileo love for one another. This commitment was a substantial one. And if Peter was rebuked here for using the term phileo uh, instead of agape, why didn't he go back to agape under the ministration of the Holy Spirit in this passage? Well, he's calling us to this very high form in the, in the Greek and Roman mind of what it means to have brotherly love for one another. That one will lay down his life for one another. That's what is engaged here. That's the kind of, of, of commitment that we are talking about here. And so we are called to this phileo love. And in the mind of Peter, I'm convinced that most of his early audience that would have been their highest form. Does that mean agape love is less significant? Um, no, they, they were pretty equal. It was the direction and, uh, and, and what they viewed as just being more substantial. Uh, but again, phileo love is built upon a, the basis of a relationship of, of commitment. And when we t- talk about love, we often think, well, that's an emotion that comes and goes. But that is not true. And so we talk about brotherly love. Can I love my brother who I fight with? Yes, and hopefully you do. And if you don't, you end up like Cain destroying Abel. And so we can engage people, and we certainly can have conflict, but we will still have that commitment to that other person. And this is what we are called for. It is that which was sought to be developed within fighting units, that we would have this brotherly love, that you watch my back, I'll watch your back, and that we have this commitment to one another. And so that was what was often desired to be developed, not only in the Roman, but in the, in the Greek uh, concept of warfare, that there would be this phileo among those that, that fought together. And we, even we use that term. We use that term of the brotherhood. We, we use that term uh, in military units. Uh, these are my brothers. We hear it from from First responders, these are my brothers uh, in service, whether it be firemen or policemen or whatever, uh, that we watch out for each other, that there is that commitment that's there, uh, and that's interdependence that's there. We're dependent upon each other, and therefore we need to have this substantial, I can trust you, you can trust me relationship. And this is what God calls for within the church, that we have this kind of full commitment But we find, in fact, in the church is a very lack of that. Uh, And you might say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Where's the evidence of that? I believe one of the main evidences of that is how, well, I think there's several, um, is the level of commitment to your local church. Uh, How important are those relationships during the week? How important are they in the life of your family, those relationships? Now, when we get to Corinthians other passages where we talk about church discipline, church discipline only really is effectual if a church 
is manifesting brotherly love. That is, we have that commitment to one another um, as a family. That we aren't going to, on the slightest whim or on the, the, the littlest offense, that we are going to just turn our back and go somewhere else. But that this is a substantial part of my identity as, uh, and our family's identity, that this is who we are. This is, this is our, our extended family, uh, is within the church. And when that is absent, when that, is, when that isn't there, you will see that it's just not that important. Many other things are much more important. Many other relationships are much more important. And Jesus Christ himself is, calls us to this. If you love these others more than me, you are not worthy of me. That we have this priority that we have, we're going to have our love for God that, that is the ultimate def- definition of who we are. Our love for the brethren, which are our, our spiritual family under the blood of Jesus Christ. And then our familial relations. And that, that's often reversed and we see a lot of families that, well, no, this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my wife, this is my husband, and uh, we can't rebuke and correct them because uh, you're making me choose between God and them. Well, I'm not making you choose between them. Their sin is making you choose that, make that choice. And, and God is putting that out there, saying, who do you love more? Uh, and so really asking the question he's asking of Peter, do you love me more than these? And... That remains the question, is what are the priorities of your love relationships? And we are called again to make brotherly love a priority. When it's missing, what happens? Well, not only do we not engage ourselves within the church on a consistent basis because we don't feel that we have any responsibility or accountability, we have no real tie to that. And we see mega churches that people don't even know if you've been there or not. Well, they recognize that that's a a detriment of the mega church. That's why many of them go in and have cell groups. So we're going to break you down into cell groups, and, and this cell group meets here, this cell group, and we break them down because we recognize that in this large thing, we don't have a commitment to one another because you don't even hardly know each other. And you come in and out and not have the engagement. We know exactly who's missing this morning, don't you? Boom, 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 because we can identify that. You know, 40, 50 people, you can figure that out pretty quick, who's here and who's not here, and, and why. And, and because we have a commitment one to another, we have this relationship and a bond there, hopefully that is driven by brotherly love. And further, it becomes a very big issue if we excommunicate somebody. Does church discipline work if you are, oh, just lightly, just... Uh, engage with the church on a very informal basis and, a, and it's just a, a tangential part of your life, well, no, church discipline will never work. You'll just say, oh, shrug it off. Oh, I'll go find some other people that'll tolerate my sin. Church discipline really only works if it is injurious to you to break off a relationship with all these people who are going to say, I'm not going to eat with you until you deal with the sin, now it becomes powerful. Because these are the relationships that, that I am tied into, that I am dependent upon, that I am engaged with, that I am committed to. And now to lose those relationships is, is, is frightening. 
and it, and it calls to me to, boy, if it's that serious, what am I doing? Why is this sin more important than all these people to me? And it brings people to their right senses and, and hopefully uh, just adds to the power of the Holy Spirit of God's word to rebuke them, to correct them, that they might come to repentance. And so brotherly love enables us to live more righteously because now the power of church discipline is in effect in our life. It would it'd be a substantial thing. Rather, what we see is church hopping all over the place for any little thing. I don't like the color of that church's carpet. They made a decision I didn't care for. Personality issues, all these things. Um, I got to tell you, my personality is very different than my other members of my family I grew up with. But I still call them other members of my family, don't I? Even though our personalities are different. Even raised in the same home. Um, that's distinctions that are there. And so when we call ourselves to this, it's a commitment level that has a, a powerful effect if it's engaged in. That we don't lightly just miss. We don't lightly just disregard uh, our f- church family. We don't lightly just drop and go to somewhere else. That's got to be one of the well, greatest decisions made. And not only in terms of where you're attending church, but even where you live. We had up at, when I was pastoring up at Charity, one of our very first families, he was first deacon, and uh, very involved in the church. She was a pianist, uh, his wife, and uh, he was one of the deacons, good friends of ours, and loved them. And then he decided that there wasn't enough plumbing work here. He's a plumber. Boy, I would have loved to have a plumber. My yeah. uh, and he was going to move to Mesa, Arizona. And it was devastating for a young little church to lose their deacons. And I was just like, are you sure? You've lived all your life here. Your families are all here, and you're just breaking all that but your church family is here. And of course, they moved, and, and so we went and visited them once when we were in the Phoenix area. And he said, biggest mistake I ever made. I said, you can unmake it. I said, I don't know if we can. I don't know if I can get it. I said, you should really pray about it. I said, why was the biggest mistake you made? He says, well, we landed in a neighborhood that we were surrounded by Mormons. So every child available in that neighborhood for their children to play with were Mormons. Does it matter? Oh, yes, it matters. And so just because you see a little bit greener pastures financially or, or in, your, in your career path, that cannot be a priority in our decision-making. Brotherly love calls us out of that, that that's not the priority. My priority are my relationships in life, not just with my physical family, my spiritual family. Does that mean there's no believers in the Phoenix area? No, there are. And there are some good churches over there, even in the community of Mesa. Uh, But it was devastating to his family. Not just to lose contact with their physical family, but this spiritual family. Uh, And we've seen it time and again, that 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 break, and, and we say, well, did you get into a church there? No, haven't gotten into a church here. Like, well, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. And so this is all the evidence that brotherly love isn't a priority in our churches. 
because we don't have a commitment to each other. Substantial enough that overrides and even directs our decision-making and brings into uh, account our own lifestyle, our own choices of whether we're going to have sin or choose righteousness. And so we are called to love one another as brothers. This deep, substantial commitment that we are interdependent upon one another, that we are intercommitted to one another, and it becomes one of the highest priority relationships in our life. That we are praying for each other, that we are encouraging each other, we are strengthening each other. All those words there are in God's word, but we also have the, the basis in brotherly love to correct and rebuke one another. That we can do that without fear that we're going to run away because we don't want to be rebuked and because this relationship isn't vital enough to have that kind of influence, to draw us out of sin into righteousness. And so we are called to have that highest form of love one for another. And, but Peter here is selecting two things, and that's why I use church discipline a little bit differently than these other two. So he begins by saying having compassion for one another. And that word compassion is the word we would get the word sympathy from us, that we have a true sympathetic attitude towards one another, that we cry, weep with those who weep and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. That's the biblical concept, that we sympathize. That is, we put ourselves in your place, that we are considerate of your circumstances and needs, that I'm not going to just disregard them. That concept of sympathy isn't just poor you. We often think that's con that it is, I am going to put myself where you are at. I'm going to sympathize with where you are. I'm going to try to uh, understand and put myself under your circumstances so that when you're hurting, it truly hurts me because I put myself in your place. I have, I'm trying in my heart and mind to walk in your shoes. Now, as I get older, I find that that's easier because I have more life experience. It's really hard for you young people to walk in my shoes because you've never been where I've been. It was hard when I was your age to really sympathize with older believers. Um, but I have been where you've been. I have had all those little preschoolers running around. And that's why I'll tell you, I have a lot of sympathy for you. I've been there, done that. Got the, I didn't get a t-shirt for it either. <laughs> well, maybe I did. I have this Pap Pap t-shirt, so maybe that's it. Um, so we can put ourselves there and sympathize. And, and the concept of sympathy isn't dependent upon personal experience. It's just personal experience makes it easier to sympathize. And that's why when someone says, you don't understand because you've never blah, 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 blah. And they're putting experience as a necessity for sympathy. And I, while I'll say experience makes it easier to sympathize, it is not the basis of sympathy. It's just because I have lost uh, a loved one before, um, now I can sympathize with other people who lost a loved one. And that, there's a premise there that we get, can get trapped in and think, well, you don't understand. You can't sympathize with me. You don't, you've not lost a loved one. You've not, you, you don't have a spouse. You don't have children. You don't have these problems. You don't have my problems. Well, we can all say that. 
in some degree or another. But this concept of, of having compassion for one another, saying, I can sympathize because I have put myself into what you are going through. I am sharing, sympathy is, is the sim is, is sharing, I'm like, I want to be like what you're going through. Again, easier if I already have the experience, but that doesn't put me off the hook if I don't. I still have responsibility to just think about and meditate a little bit. Well, how difficult is it when you're older and everything hurts every time you get up in the morning and you don't have the energy level you used to have? Just even though you're young and that may not be your experience yet, uh, to engage and to deal with people like that and to have sympathy for them whether you've experienced or not to know they've experienced it it's very difficult for many of us to have sympathy for those in other countries who live in circumstances that are not just rare here they're unheard of that you've never experienced and that's why there's great value in just visiting and, and engaging and and that is transform my concept of sympathy and, and compassion for our believers in other lands, and I pray differently, I behave differently, I have a different attitude towards the great abundance that is at our disposal, and now I don't ever want to raise my standard of living, even though it naturally occurs. I try to be careful about that because I remember having breakfast in a man's house that had no roof. Well, they had a roof over half of it where they slept. And I've seen that. And I contemplate that I was there for one meal. He's there every day with that little child. He's got a full roof now, but he's also got like four kids in one room house. And I go into these places, and I go to Haiti, and I go to Cuba, and I say, and even India, and even the Philippines, I go... I'm here visiting, it, but these people are still there living under those circumstances and have always lived under those circumstances. And so we put ourselves and we look at there and we try to imagine, we try to have that compassion for them and now suddenly we are, there, there's a little bit of guilt, I hope, they're saying, I have it so good. Why am I ever complaining? As good as we have it. As easy as we have it. I have a problem. Every morning, I go into my closet and decide what to wear. Nobody in Havana, Cuba had that problem that I encountered because they only had their Sunday clothes and their daily clothes. One of each. Same thing in Haiti. And so when we look at this now, once I put myself there and I look upon that circumstances and I can... I, I now it transforms our thinking, and now our compassion is there, our sympathizing is there. We are along with them. While I'm not having their experience every day, and I can't hardly imagine what it'd be like to live like that every single day, to wonder where uh, to have to hike a mile to get your fresh water every day. To hike a mile to get fresh water every day. Boy, it really transforms your concept instead of just going to turn on the faucet. Now we have sympathy. 
Now we can, but we need to exert effort to get to that point, don't we? Because it's real easy to become complaints that, and, and not think about our brother and their circumstances, even within a local church. In my ease and in my comforts, to not think about others' discomfort. We are called to this, to have compassion, sympathy for one another. That we put ourselves into their circumstances and we demonstrate our commitment to them in that. The next concept that we tie in here is the third term, and we're going to bring these together. And that is that we are tender-hearted. And you might say, well, that not that same? Uh, tender-hearted is the application of sympathy. It talks about a willingness to open up to others. and to engage them. Tender-hearted is not just an attitude or, a, or a, a, a predisposition to uh, sympathize for others. It is a willingness to fully uh, open up and to say, my resources are your resources. We have the phrase in our culture here, in the Spanish culture, mi casa, su casa, my house is your house. That is, my resources are your resources. I am tender-hearted. I'm not callous to it. Because there's certainly, we can build up calluses. Well, what, what builds up calluses? Now, I'm a pretty callous person, and I'm pretty sure it's because uh, not just of, of a personality trait, but out of some experience. Because just like experience can make you more sympathetic, experience can also make you less tender-hearted. So it's kind of a two-edged sword. You've got to be careful of it. And so I can be kind of calloused against um, people who are uh, asking for financial assistance when I get that call pretty much every week. And to say, oh, here's another person. All right, let me hear your story. And da, 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 da. And out of all these years, over 30 years of ministry, think of how many hundreds of those stories I have heard. It's easy to get calloused. And each one, I take that call, I get their information, and then I ask them weird questions that they're probably not used to hearing and asking for a little different information, and then I check it. I've done weird things. I've called people across the country out of the blue. Hey, I was given your phone number by so-and-so. Are you expecting them? Is there a job waiting for them there at that place? And I get to hear the other side of the story. If you catch that so-and-so, you tell, you know, no, you're not welcome there. In fact, you've created a lot of damage there. No, you don't have a job there. They, in fact, you lost your job there because of your drug abuse or whatever. And you go through it, and then you see it, and, and pretty soon you start getting callous, don't you? And you make the assumption that everyone that calls you, and I remember I got one call like that, and I was like, okay, here we go. And I was like, 
what do you need? This gal's on the phone. She's got this need. She's calling a local pastor. And I'm like, what do you need? She says, I need a ride. I said, well, and usually they're wanting travel money to get to the next town or whatever because they've broken down in town. And then I find out that they didn't. Um, this is just their talk. And so I do a lot of background research to try to do this. This is because, this is because I'm not calloused. I try really hard to take everyone's story and just check it out. So I'm like, okay, where are you trying to get to? She says, no, I, I'm just, I just need a ride to the airport. I assume she wants me to buy her a plane ticket too because it's usually where it ends up. And I try to be sensitive. So I'm saying, well, I said, where are you heading? And well, back home, and you know, it's always home, and it's, and so I finally just realized that, oh, you have a plane ticket, you just need a ride, and she didn't want to call a taxi. So I went, I had one of the young people at church with me, I took him with me, because I'd never pick up a lady <laughs> and take her anywhere by myself. So I took a young man from the church with me, sat in the back seat, went and picked her up, and, uh, She just wanted to talk to a pastor because her marriage was dissolving. And she came out trying to rescue it. And she was going back to Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia, and wanted a Baptist pastor to talk to on the way there. And so we stopped at a place, and the young man went and so she could talk to me. And uh, she said, I can't believe God has brought you here to take me this, because I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, graduated from Roanoke Valley Christian Schools. We played the school that she taught at. She was a teacher at Lynchburg Baptist Academy, and we played them in soccer, and she was just thrilled to have a pastor that knew all about her school. And But if I was callous, I would have just said, oh, I'm going to call a cab. So being tenderhearted is saying, I'm open to even the injury sometimes that can come by being open and the abuses that can be there. Now, does that mean I'm so foolish to be abused? No, I take the measures, but those measures are, I'm always hoping their story pans out, and in all these years, I think four times the story has panned out. Four times out of hundreds. But if I was callous, those four times would have been a a lost opportunities of ministry. So we think that being tender-hearted is you see that sign, you know, please help on the corners. We drive up and we give them a couple of bucks. That's not being tender-hearted. You're just salving your your own guilt for all that God has given you. You want to get out here and hear their story and find out what's really going on. Is there drug abuse? Is there family abuse? What's going on there? find out how you can really meet their needs, and we've striven to do that. In our policy manual, we have it laid out. Here's how we assist. Here's, it's not just a handout. It's, it's here. We're going to get involved in your life, and we're going to find out what decisions you were making in your life that got you to this place, and maybe it was circumstances and not your decisions. We want to find that out. We want to help you to get restored and into a right relation with God and then with his people and then with society. And that takes a lot of work. Tenderheartedness is what opens us up to expose ourselves for that kind of assistance, to take it more than just, uh, well, here, I'll give you a few bucks. Now, I don't have to think about you. 
That's usually what they're asking for, but that's really not what they need, is it? They need something much more substantial, and it takes a lot from us to do that. And we recognize that there are going to be liars, there's going to be abusers, and we want to stay tender-hearted. That is open to the needs of others and not calloused against them. And that can happen within a church setting, too. So you say, well, that's just the way they are. They, and to become kind of callous because you hear that prayer request, you hear that, that need seems to always be there. Well, it's always there because it's a real need. That we need to exert ourselves and lay ourselves out there, open ourselves up and to that genuine need that is there. And if it is abused, then we have measures to take and we guard ourselves, but we do not become callous in that process. We should seek to be tender-hearted. What's really going on? And let's find some real solutions. And this is really the tack that our church wants to take with the world, certainly that calls and says, I need to pay my utility bills, I need to pay whatever, but more importantly, within e- between each other. Do not become callous. Well, that's just that family. That's just that those people. That's just him. That's just her. That's just the way they always are. Um, no, if we are tender-hearted, we want to engage and open up to one another to say, well, how can we get from where you are to where you need to be in Christ? Not just spiritually, but socially. And even uh, in relationships, that's socially, uh, in financially, materially, uh, that we want to get you from where you are to where you should be. And most of this has to do with getting involved in people in the decision-making process in their life. What decisions are you making that makes this chronic in your life? That you're chronically in these kinds of situations. You're making decisions. Can we help you make better ones? Not just one time, but have a pattern of it. And that's really what the ministry is all about. We minister to one another to build one another up. That's the word edification in the Bible. That we edify one another. Uh, That involves information. It involves how to use that information. The impartation of wisdom to build us up. And and then the other word is to strengthen. Uh, That is to give us the determination, the resolve to move and to act upon the information we have. But then there's also a term, encouragement. And that's a term used for the Holy Spirit, the comforter. He's there to encourage us. And tenderheartedness opens us up to using all of those to help these people. This is what Paul described as his ministry. I am here to edify, to pray for you, to to strengthen you, to encourage you, uh, but, and sometimes that involves rebuke and correction. All of that is encompassed in being tender-hearted to bring real solutions to people, even though it may be costly to me to do that for them. It may take time for years. It may persist. It may be persistent things. And those are difficult ones. It takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of tender heart, not to become callous to that need. Well, we always have the same need. Well, some circumstances demand that. That we have a tender heartedness keeps us open. Is there risk involved? Yes. 
can people wear out their access? Yes, particularly if it's involving sin, deception, and a refusal to repent, to correct. If I don't want to hear God's word, if you don't, I'm sorry, if you don't want to hear God's word, don't want to hear God's word, at some point, I just say, well, there's nothing I can do for you. Not because I'm calloused against you, but because you've chosen to disregard the one thing I have that can help you. And that is the truth of God's word. If you can't be responsive to that, anything else I give you is a waste. And so we, that, that's the premise of the passage of don't cast your pearls before swine. It's not don't be sympathetic and tender-hearted to them. It's recognize that at some point they will lose the right to or the access to those resources. But tender-heartedness says I'm going to be patient and looking for this. And we see this in Jesus' ministry. Those that he was tender-hearted towards and those that he just, psh, that was the end. You might say, well, all the Pharisees and Sadducees has no time for them. Well, you're wrong. He engaged them regularly, didn't he? They engaged him regularly. When Nicodemus comes to him at night, he's more than happy to sit down and talk with them. He's like, you should know all this. You're a leader of Israel. What's going on? Um, we're still in the corrective rebuke stage, but it's tender-hearted all the way along there. And in that context, he finds out what it means to be born again, and the gospel is there, and it has an impact on Nicodemus. So he's the one there at the crucifixion that wants to put uh, help put Christ in the grave. He's engaging these men, even though they are resistant to him. Until the point where he says, he just rebukes them. You're a brood of vipers. You're whitewashed sepulchers. You're the blind leading the blind. You've seen everything. You've heard everything. But at some point, that's enough. And God has, has, has shown that even in his patient work with Israel, then with Judah. But finally they cross a the line. They say, well, you're going, to, you're going into exile. You've lost the blessing. And so tenderheartedness is not foolishness. Tenderheartedness recognizes there's a point that once that point is crossed, that there is, it's more loving to withdraw until they get it right. That's what church discipline is all about. Now the premise of all of this and why we, we talk about tenderheartedness and compassion is because of what Peter is going to bring out. You are here to be a blessing to people, right? That's where this passage is going. Look at it over here at the end of verse 9. It says, to this, you, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit blessing. You are, on the contrary, blessing. You're called to be a blessing. Uh, you're called to bless these people, to, to seek their peace, to be their benefactor. Tenderheartedness says, I'm here to be a blessing, not to to be a curse. I'm not here to make your life harder. I'm here. Tenderheartedness recognizes that. I'm not here to get it right because it's my way. Do it my way or I'm out of here. I'm like, well, there's the door. Um, 
because we're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it God's way. And if, even if it's a pastor that sets up, do it my way or I'm resigning, well, take his resignation letter that day, gladly. Say, can you write that right now? Just a little scrap of paper will work. As soon as he makes that statement, this is the way I want it done or else I'm leaving, then leave. If it's not in accordance with God's word, if we do not have that one-mindedness, if it isn't built upon brotherly love, if it isn't compassionate and tender-hearted, then let them go. There comes that point. But on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis, with those that are committed, we are called to be tender-hearted, knowing that some needs are chronic, some can be fixed in a very short period of time, some require that process. It's an up-and-down process of maturation spiritually. They're going to have regression, and just like your children with their growth, it doesn't always, it's not always, it's in spurts, and sometimes there's regression and things like that, but we want to see that growing, and once we get maturity, that now these issues are addressed. And that might take a couple of decades. You realize that when you have a kid, you might be a couple of decades you're dealing with them. This is the commitment level God calls us to within the church. And so I want to get you away from the concept that love is a feeling and it involves your emotions. It involves your commitments. It involves putting yourself in other people's circumstances and needs. And it's about willing to open up your resources to meet those needs. As much as you are able, as much as they are responsive to them. There's certainly a balance here that we want to strike to prevent them from being abusive because then they're in a sin environment. And I think there's plenty of scripture to guard us against that, to not encourage that abuse. But yet, if we really want to be ministering one another, we must be compassionate, we must be tender-hearted, and that, to be done well and right, needs to be out of a brotherly love for one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Pray that we might implement in our lives in a consistency that brings you glory and ministers your gospel to one another and then to the world. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.